Welcome to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Christopher, Torben, Ira, and Thomas to discuss how to use data visualizations for business. So before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Christopher, do you want to kick some this off? I am uh, Christopher West from Capacity. I'm the head of the Capacity Academy, and I do a lot of teaching in data visualization, especially in Power BI. Great, Torben. Yeah, I'm Torben. I work at a engineering consultancy in NEOS, and I'm heading our data science department uh, with a lot of focus on data visualization. So it's fun to be part of this podcast. Perfect. Ira? Hi, my name is Ira Silisnyova. I'm working at a company which is called Brandwatch, and I, I've been in Denmark for two years, uh, and I've been working with data for around seven years and with visualization all this time. Uh, I'm a team lead of data ops team in our company. Okay, great. And finally, Thomas. Yeah, I'm Thomas. I'm I'm originally trained as a physicist and then later turned into data scientist, as many others, I think. And I work at uh, as a director of data and analytics in an IoT company called Connected Cars, where we, yeah, we have a tons of data we uh, we need to visualize and understand. So, okay. very interesting topic this one. Great. Well, hopefully you'll all be able to take something away from this chat today. Um, so now we have established a context to each of you. Let's move on to our topic in focus for today. Uh, so you all have questions or statements on how to use data visualizations for business. And as usual, I'll work around the room with each of these questions and allow each of you to elaborate. And each will then have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Okay, so Torben, we'll come to you first. You'd like to discuss both data visualizations on a map and visualizing time series data. Can you elaborate a little for us? Yeah, sure. I think normally if I see a column of data that has either time or place in it, then I get giddy and excited because <laughs> I just know there's so many possibilities of data visualizations that are not bar charts. Um, and I just see so many people who don't get ex as excited as I do, and it's, it's a shame. <laughs> Um, when people see like geographical data in their in their tables, they'll probably start putting it on a Google Maps or something with a with a small circle where the data relies uh, where where it belongs. And to me, it's just so much easier to give that circle a bit of color, maybe actually give it a shape. There's so many boundaries in the geographical space, so we can just put it to be the actual boundary of the municipality or of the building site or. Now, I just think there's there's so much to be gained from that because it's so intuitive for people to understand a map. So whenever there's something that can be put on a map, I definitely will. And then it just goes for the same with time. We have an intuitive sense of time, all of us, uh, but it's so easy for people to just make one big timeline with dates on it or times of the day. And then you can just scroll to the right in endless series of time where it's just, it's got an inherent hierarchy in it so you can just say well this is an hour but an hour belongs to a day a day belongs to a week and this is how an average week looks like averages are just so much fun when you look at time um and i just think it's fun to play around with and i want more people to join me on that okay christopher do you want to do you want to start us off there then yeah so from from my perspective at least as as a i, I am also a part of being um, a part of the, the academy I'm, i also work as a senior advisor in data storytelling as we call it um and a lot of the time one of the things that i preach is 
the map is probably never the right visualization to do deep dive into your data, but it's always the right visualization to, if you have geographical data and you want people to actually get excited about your report, as you say, it's one of those things where you really get caught on by seeing, ooh, there's a big yellow dot here. I better click it and then maybe have it, um, whenever you tell your story, then you maybe click your country and then you navigate to another page. Um, and I, I think it's the same when it comes to uh, visualizing data on a time series. A lot of the time, as you say, you see something where you just see one big line for every every all three years, something like that, where you see just a line that really much navigates in the middle instead of showing maybe top and bottom five months or something like that so that you can click it and then see where is that actually situated? Why did it do that? Um, so I think a lot of the time, for me at least, uh, one of the things that I find hard when we design reports is the visuals need to both tell a story and they also need to tell the right story. So you need to gather people in with maybe some visualizations. And then once you click something, then you get told that story. So when you click a country, you want to see, you know, why is that country the best one? Or why is that country just a median, uh, whatever. But having a, one of the things that I at least uh, say is that having one big report for an entire company, is probably never going to be the right thing. It's probably going to be the same data visualized in maybe 10 different reports because sales data, it's not just sales data. It might depend on uh, different kinds of uh, roles that you have, what you want to see from that data. Right, great. And Thomas, anything to add? Yeah, I'm just, I, I think I I share the giddiness of uh, geospatial data with uh, Tom. Um, <laughs> and we, in our IT company, we have, I, I think, uh, around 100 million GPS positions a day and temperature maps. So I have a background in geophysics. And, and I, I think I agree with you, Christopher, in, in the sense that not necessarily the map representation uh, is what you're going to use in a, uh, in a business intelligence sense on the given day, but the the, the excitement maps and the intuitive uh, familiarization people have with maps is is really exciting. So I have a when I I do public talks, I always end up with showing temperature map. We we collect kind of hundred fifty thousand. Uh, temperature measurements in in 15 minutes usually, so I can make really detailed grab, uh, maps of temperatures, and I always end up with that because it engages people and it just draws people in 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 a talk. So I, I I share that. One thing perhaps to add on the time series is that um, like I I agree on this like remembering the the hierarchy and and, and recently we we made a plot. When we needed to show both long-term and short-term trends, so we showed the same data only the the last 30 days and the last uh, 90 days and the last year, all in the same plots. Because like that, showing some trends are very hard to find when you don't see the whole data series. And some, I've like the outcome was we needed to show all time scales at the same time. So it's kind of uh, I think it really you're right about that being important to to really understand the time series correctly. Mm -hmm. Christian, did you or Christopher? Sorry, did you have something else to add? Yeah, it's it's one of those things again with with uh, with the map visualization. So you, you said heat maps or you know that kind of thing. One of the things that I that that I think that we neglect when showing things on a map might be that you know if we have a map of Denmark and having something like. Uh, uh, we we did something with uh, ambulance services where they had the most uh, in, where they had the most accidents, something like that, on a heat map. And obviously, 
that is going to be the biggest heat, the biggest heat uh, temperature is going to be in Copenhagen because it has the most people. So if you change the series, instead of just showing the number of accidents, maybe showing number of accidents, you know, percentage by inhabitant, something like that, so that it gives you more value so that you immediately can see something. Again, with IoT data, if you just show on a map where you have the most incidents, it's probably going to be where you have the most sensors, uh, things like that. So it's, it's, as you said also, Torben, showing that average, or as you have in, in your uh, description, maybe showing an average or a percentage of something is going to give you a much better a perception of what you're actually looking at. Yeah, I, I actually, I come to think about when you, when you talk about the whole deep dive on data is very difficult to do on a map. That just reminds me of the difficulty we actually have working with maps is that the only way that we, all, we normally actually show the actual value is by color. And color scales are just inherently difficult to work with. Uh, they're colorblind people. Some people are more sensitive to seeing a red color as being significantly higher value than a yellow color. And just as you say, Christopher, the the normalization of data becomes very important because the scales just look weird when you only have colors to rely on, where a column chart is so much more intuitive to see that something is doubly as big as something else. I can I interject here just on the color scale? Because I, I think I shared that passion. I, I was in the oil industry for, for 10 years before going into data science. And like uh, the the impact of saying the jet color scale, which is uh, luminosity is not linear, is kind of, it, it, there's many papers out there that shows that like mistake have been made just because color blindness or you photocopied it into black and white and then the darkness is is not true. So again, I mean, color scales is a really a pet PV of mine as well. In in how do you tell a story uh, with data? Uh, very very important point. I like to at least when when we're talking colors, I like to shy away from using both colors and sizes. So if you have a color gradient, so especially in a bar chart, if you use color gradients as well. It's going to be really hard to actually look at what you're seeing. So I like to use, use at least in, in that sense, if I use colors at all, if I have sizes as well, it's oftentimes polarized colors. So you see either something is good or something is bad. Then you can dive into another page maybe where you can see okay, everything that is bad might be divided into two different categories there. So you don't end up with that thing where you have different size bubbles and you have different uh, color gradients of the bubbles because you end up with something that is that more purple than that one? Or is that, you know, um, that, that can be really hard, especially again, going coming back to if it's something on a front page, maybe, but if it's something that you go deep dive into your sense of data, then it needs to be very clear whether or not you're you're seeing something that is good or bad. Um, Era, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, unfortunately, I don't have that much experience working with the data on the map, and uh, yeah, but I agree that uh, it's a very good way to bring attention because uh, I was doing uh, some reports and showing these circles, but only because I got really, really good feedback from uh, from people in the business and i'm like okay i will do more just say me that i i did it good but it was like in the beginning uh, of my career and uh, about the time series data it's also i don't really i haven't met people who haven't used uh, inherited hierarchy so we always have uh, several levels of hierarchy for time series data and it's it's never only day uh, so I cannot add too much into that. Okay, anything anyone else would like to add? No, 
No? Okay, great. We'll move on to our next question then. So we've got Thomas. So you want to talk about how to communicate and visualize uncertainty to business units. Can you give us a bit of context? Yeah, so um, there's always kind of a, the, the push between data professionals and the like um, other branches of a, of a business in how do you present data or how do you understand data. And, and as, a, as a data professional, I always want to push, okay, there's uncertainty in this data and we should appreciate it and it should be part of the visualization so we can talk about it and have that impact. And for, for the feedback you often get, and I've gotten many times, is that like this will draw away from the conclusion we want to make and, and my question or open-ended thing is, like, I think we as data professionals should be, uh, should be pushing this agenda. Like, we need to talk about show visual uh, uncertainty and talk about it. I, I recently had a, a, a simple example where I kind of looked at a data set uh, for a talk about uh, how, many, how much tips do you make? Uh, is it higher at lunchtime or dinner time? And kind of if you looked at the the mean of it, like one is clearly higher. And once you do a kind of a bootstrapped uh, confidence interval, you can see they overlap. So kind of immediately, if you don't only do a, a, a simple mean, you, you come to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, it's higher. And if you look at the confidence interval, it's quite clear you can't say. <laughs> and and if you look at medians or descriptive statistics, it kind of it, it reveals another answer. So I, I think we. It's my own questions. What are your thoughts on, on this? Because I think we should be um, talking about our responsibility to talk about uncertainties. Okay, Christopher, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, so um, at least one of the things that a lot of people talk about right now, and, and one of the things you mentioned as well, is, is data quality as well. Because if you base a decision just on what you can see and what the trends that you have and everything that is categorized correctly, you might get the wrong picture. So if you look at your complete data set and say that everything has been stamped, let's just say like service desk data, something like that, and you look at your categories going, okay, so whenever people you know, come to the service desk, they have this problem, it gets solved right away. But then you look at, at all your data and saying, okay, so 90% of our data has just been tagged with other uh, because the service desk agent or something like that, just that's the easy way to actually categorize it. So uncertainty and how you actually communicate that is really, as you said, it's really, really important. But it's also one of those things where it can become really complex really fast. And especially looking at that data quality and everybody understanding how that data quality is or what you're trying to visualize. And what we're looking at is actually only 10% of the data. Like you said, you know, are we looking at breakfast or are we looking at lunch and dinner? If only 10 people come to lunch, but a thousand people come to dinner, you know, that's obviously going to create a, a big interval in, in the amount of tips, or at least hopefully. Um, so again, coming back to your KPIs and how they are actually defined becomes really important really fast. And one of the solutions to this, I, at least from, from some of the organizations that I work with, is always, you know, how do we add comments? How can we add a comment so that it's clear? you know why this is and and it's it, it always comes back to me as a as a report designer going if you need to add a comment to your visuals then it, the visual isn't correct you need to be able to see in that visual why is it showing only this or why is it doing this without having to add a whole bunch of comments uh, and you know text boxes that are static it needs to be interactive so that when you click something at least it it, it shows uh, the the correct data in the 
in the right way so that it's a header that says this is only a depiction of the 10% of the data that can actually catalog catalog using this uh, function or something like that. Okay, great. Torben, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, well, I 100% agree that the that the underlying data set is just so important to understand. And as we say, there's like lies, damn lies and statistics, right? And I think one of the one of the things that can actually help us with that problem is data visualization, because most of my even engineering colleagues can't really give a good explanation of the difference between a median and a mean. Um, so even giving both values is not really helpful. And a standard deviation is even more difficult to, to understand for people. So I need to make it very intuitive for people to understand distributions of data. So I think, well, the, in the perfect world, we'll just do box plots. They got everything in them, but it's just got the exact same problem. No one understands them, right? Except data nerds like us. So I increasingly start working with violin plots. I think they do they do some of it, disregarding the whole 90% of the data is in the blank category. Of course, they don't help with that part, but they do show a distribution where people have a more intuitive understanding of the tail of the data. So either that or just a shaded area that shows like a confidence interval. So people understand that it's not one line, there's actually some kind of distribution to it. And then they might not understand what a confidence interval is, but they do understand that there's some wiggle room. Yeah, okay, Ira, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I wanted to add that uh, it's, uh, I think it's very important to understand to whom we deliver this visualization, because you cannot expect from everyone in the business to have the same level of knowledge of statistics. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, Durban said, like mean difference between mean and median. So actually it's it's pretty much intersect with my question about data, data literacy and different levels of data knowledge uh, uh, from the business and stakeholders to whom you deliver this visualization. And for me, it's still an open question whether data people should uh, try to teach uh, and uh, bring more knowledge, data knowledge uh, and education to the company or do somehow else? I, I have no answer to that. Okay, Thomas? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're a very good point is, is kind of a, what is your audience and, 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 and my argument here is that like this audience might not be as trained as, as looking at data and understanding these uncertainties as we are and I, I think just at least my, my internal when I go to when I present new data I always try to push to show confidence interval but I always also get a pushback to oh, that's, that's a great plot. Can we can we do that without the confidence interval, which is can then kind of conflicted and I sure like okay if that tells the story you want but you should be aware that this and this <laughs> is the underlying look at the confidence interval before you remove it but it kind of I, I really want to push uh, like the normal like I would a perfect world it would be more normal to show everything with uncertainties so we could have the uh, like a common knowledge about this is overlapping and etc. So when, whenever we teach, uh, I, we have this within uh, our material, we have something called the 10 golden rules of dashboard design. And the second rule here is actually, you always want to design for and with your actual user. And I have one of these arch users, the, the typical user in, in a business uh, in, in a business world is, is that guy that has a post-it on his uh, on his laptop with his password. And, you know, that guy should also be able to go in and actually look at at, at his as his reporting. Right. And 
he's probably not going to be the guy that you explain to. This is the confidence confidence interval, and, and this is the difference between these two measures. You know that needs to be really, really easy. So again, if you're showing this to a person that has worked with IoT uh, sensors for years upon years, you know that is probably going to be better. Um, and then it, for the average business user, it's probably going to be a totally different report. But you know, again, we don't try to cram everything into one big report. We maybe want to you know produce two different ones or at least a couple of different storylines where we uh, we end up on different pages because otherwise it's going to be a nightmare. Okay, so is that everything for that question then? Anyone got any final thoughts? Okay, great. So Ira, you've asked, how do we find the best balance between data visualizations, best practices and stakeholders requests? Do you want to give a little bit of context? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I used to attend uh, data visualization and infographics classes. And after that, I was really, really inspired to bring the best visualization to the world and to stakeholders in the company. But then I faced some um, trouble uh, because uh, some people just uh, very, very um, they, they insist on what, what kind of visualizations they want to have. And uh, I started to question my approach, whether should I always bring the best uh, visualization to stakeholders in the dashboard or it's, we can negotiate that or it's easier just to agree, okay, you want to have a, a, yeah, like a bar chart instead of a line chart for time series. Okay, let's do it. Cool. So it's one of those things where, you know, the end users, again, I said just just now said that you want to design for and with the end users. Another thing that is is a very uh, a thing that I, incur, uh, I encounter a lot is you know, the end users never know what they actually want or they don't at least know what they need. Um, so um, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago um, and a guy from Microsoft called Benny. Uh, he had a he, he started his session by saying um, so. It's not that I'm going to kill you if you ever use a bar chart. It's not that I hate you guys for using bar charts uh, or no pie uh, charts, uh, but, you know, use them wisely, which is never. Um, and it, it's one of those things. It's never the right visual. And, and with a lot of these things, I, I get asked a lot. So do you guys have like a, a template that can be used uh, across all companies in, in uh, for example, Power BI? And it's one of those things. No, we don't because it's very, very different from user to user what they would expect. But one thing that I continuously come across is that uh, no user on the planet is ever going to enjoy looking at spreadsheets uh, day on end, having to scroll through and having to find trends in just seeing the numbers. Everybody uh, will benefit from seeing them uh, more graphically nice presented. And listening to the users saying, so I need to see this. Could we, you know, and instead of just uh, having them come to you with an Excel sheet or something like that with a uh, pie chart going, I want this in this tool instead of what I have now, it's probably not going to work. But listening to how they actually use it, helping them to uh, achieve uh, making data driven decision is, is probably one of the most exciting things about my job, at least. OK, Torben. Yeah, well, I agree. There are no rules set in stone with this. Like I try to avoid giving them a pie if I if I can avoid it. But <laughs> sometimes you just have to give in. Um, but I think the, the more I work with the more difficult users who really have their opinion on what they want, the more I try to lean into actually being a consultant and leaning into saying, well, data is my domain. I actually, I actually know something here. You might have some wishes, but I actually have some like just listen to my to my domain knowledge at least about data before you make your decision. 
I think the only real rule that I think is difficult for me to to budge on is uh, just the teachings of Edward Tuft. It's just the whole peel away, peel away, peel away, make it simple. Uh, and whenever I have users who want to make it more complicated, can I add some more colors? Can I add some more lines? Can I just put just 15 visualizations should be good on this front page? Then I really start saying an actual no. I think that's the only rule that I really rely heavily on. Yeah, if I can add kind of um, so one of the, the learnings I have had over the last uh, few years is also kind of there's been a lot of talk about the concept of data citizens. And, and that we should have like everywhere democratize the whole concept of accessing data and analytics. And and for, to some extent, I, I love it. We have dashboards that can traverse terabytes of data for everybody to use. But my learning is also that kind of, it doesn't work. Like you, you can't make a dashboard that is intuitive for all business units. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a, it doesn't work out that way. So, so what we often now do is we have a, we have this great capability of accessing data and dissecting it yourself. But we always lead in with an introduction. So this is how it works. This is what you will be looking for if you want to go look at the time series and then make this breakdown and kind of because it, it like the concept of these things standing alone and the data citizen just making their own conclusions, I think, can be uh, can be a little bit dangerous. Is Like, we all know this as data professionals, like there's all these fallacies you can go into uh, with data and you can you can make biases uh, and you can make uh, uh, different kind of uh, bias problems, selection bias and all these things. And if you aren't made aware of it, you can easily fall into a trap. Okay, now I, I dissected into this subgroup and I found a trend, great but you should keep Simpson's paradox in mind and look at the old world trend or whatever it is. I'm just, yeah, <laughs> like intro sessions to, to whenever like working with these tools, I think is essential because it, otherwise it's a monumental task to make everybody happy. Yeah, Christopher, did you have something to add there? Yeah, so so one of the things that I, I try to do as well is when we talk about this, you can't make a unified report for the entire company. But one thing you can do is try to make templates that work for the company. So have something like using the same colors within the, the, the you, no, no matter what tool you use. So again, obviously I, I work with Microsoft tools, but you know, having a template, so a share template for the entire company so that everything looks the same, it looks uniform. It has the logo in the right spot. It uses the right colors that are the colors of the company, not the standard colors of the product. So having something like that will encourage trust in, in whatever you want to do. And, you know, so no matter how, what kind of visualization you use, at least it's the right colors and it's it's placed in the right uh, kind of spot and, and has uh, data labels instead of access values or something like that. That that at least helps me to have something that is that is more uniform and, you know, gives a, a best practice at least for, uh, you know, and, and can accommodate for different stakeholder um, uh, request as well. So if you have something that you have a front page that always looks the same with like a picture background and some boxes and then deep dive uh, backgrounds where it has more room for uh, for visuals, things like that, um, can it can at least help tell that story a little bit better? Yeah, Ira? 
I wanted to say that uh, it's a really cool point. It sounds like a design system, but uh, for data visualization, so we have collection of uh, graphs. Um, but I have a question to Thomas. Uh, uh, you mentioned that you do introduction session to the visualization every time you deliver something. And I wanted to ask, uh, do you do these sessions uh, every time a new user start to use your visualization or it's only one time thing? Because uh, from, um, from my experience, uh, yeah, you usually build the dashboard with one stakeholder, with one person who says to you your that their uh, business requirements, but then you also want other people to use this dashboard. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure what is the best way to to talk about it. Should I introduce it every time someone new starts to use it, or just introduce it to the whole department? Uh, I'm kind of um, open there. So, so I can tell you what we kind of uh, practically every time a new employee is an onboarded, they have introduction sessions with the heads of the different units, which is lovely because then they know a little bit about our device team and business unit, and and then I also have a, a session with <laughs> with the that person and shows them if there's uh, more that's starting in the same months. We have several people, but then I go through our dashboards and kind of with no intention of them being able to kind of use them, but knowing enough about what what is the offerings. Like we, we, we provide this, we provide that, and this is what you can do and kind of just inspire people. And then at the end, kind of like, now I want to solve this problem and I can, if it's something that is readily available and the tools we already built, I can have a session saying, okay, I can solve it, but I'll I'll show it at your desk, <laughs> and or somebody from my team will, and and we'll just go through it and say, okay, yeah, sure, click here, and you want to be looking for this and this, and then kind of that kind of uh, introduction, but yeah, definitely not a one-time thing. It's kind of ongoing because our tooling, or our products or deliverables are also changing ever, all the time. So I, I, I actually have one thing because it, it's becoming more and more, we're talking about this uh, revolution within uh, BI. So more and more tools are being brought out where it's interactive, you can click on things. And obviously this goes to the clients as well. And you have bigger companies where you want to push that towards your uh, actual customers. So sharing reports like that might, you know, even though it might be logical within our organization and that, you know, and when someone is onboarded, I can, I can bring them up to speed on what we use our internal, um, how we use our internal tools, but giving it to customers is a big, big problem. And we're actually doing more and more of uh, like video sessions where we go through, how do you actually navigate this? How would you as a customer go in and do this? So even though uh, reports should be pretty self-explanatory, they should be able to stand on their own feet or something like that. Having something like that, where again, you embrace that people are different. Uh, there are gonna be a lot of different users maybe using this. Having something like a video, short introduction, two minutes at a maximum where you go through. So this is where you find your home button. You can navigate here. You can open up filters by doing this. Um, something like that is actually something that we spend more and more time on so that it, it can be really, really easy, but it needs to be one of those things where it, it's, it needs to be within the report that you can click on something and then it sh it's, the video shows or, or making it really super easy for those users that are not super confident IT users so that they can always also gain that knowledge um, into, into the data that they actually need. Yeah, okay, Thomas. I think I, you hit an excellent point. I, I think I haven't mentioned that either, but in like we have dashboard that is uh, externally uh, provided and those are then we have design teams 
and they kind of they remove all <laughs> all the exciting stuff in my opinion no no they re remove <laughs> all the confusing stuff and 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 make a very clear story and i think that's super important externally and internally i think uh, then of course we like it can be much more rough and the functionalities uh, can be much richer because it's i have time to sit down uh, usually and and go through it um, so yeah i think a very valid point but it's externally it should be some sort of self-explanatory at least or, or whether or not you're novo nordisk or uh, the kiosk on the corner uh you know you you can you can bring that up internally or yeah um yeah <laughs> I just think it's super interesting to hear how we are actually talking about data visualization, but all of us are just so used to working with interactive data visualizations now, since BI is such a big part of our world, that go 20 years ago, and then we talk about how to make a beautiful visualization that actually fits on a five years ago, maybe even Christopher. <laughs> you don't have to go that that far back, or even maybe just to other, other companies and ours. And then a good data visualization is something that prints well on a piece of paper. Uh, I think it uh, it gives us a lot of freedom that we can interact with our visualizations. It makes sure that we can use some visualizations as more top-down overview and some visualizations to be the details that you get once you click on it. But it definitely also just gives us this whole other level of abstraction where the user now can cross-filter between visualizations by clicking on them. And I think that part is, as Christopher says correctly, that I think it should be the visualizations should be self-explanatory, but the actual navigation of your dashboard, if that's what you're making, cannot always be 100% self-explanatory. So I, I agree that that part might need some videos once in a while. Yeah, and it, it, and and if, if, you know, again, I do a lot of teaching, and I, I use uh, mainly Power BI, and I had a and I had a session. I think it was three and a half years ago, something like that. And we go through everything that we build a dashboard. Everything is interactive. And then we come to the sharing part and I go, so when we share it, we share it online. We go and then one person sits in the audience. She goes, so what if we what if we can't share it online? What if we what if we want something that is print? And I go, so this tool is not meant for print. You know, find another tool. And, you know, why should it be print? Why, why can't it be an interactive? Why can't it be a browser? Well, she goes, she, she looks at the ceiling. And she goes, well, our CEO doesn't have a computer. And I, and I go, so this is three, three and a half years ago, right? And it, it was not just one of those small businesses. He did not have a computer. So, and she goes, the way that he responds to emails is that he gets a printed out version of the email. He writes his notes on it by pen yeah. and he gives it back to the secretary. <laughs> so, so I go, so, okay, fair enough. So you have to embrace that there are some users, again, not that tech savvy. Uh, so I probably want to find a different tool for that person because he wants to know his business as well, right? So it, it is, you know, you don't have to go 20 years back. And it is obviously we all, as you said, we, we're talking about interactive visualizations. Obviously, there are still things that are meant for print or something that is meant for distribution as a PDF or something. And that just that is just something that is not going to go away. Because, again, if you're distributing outside your organization, you might not want to have people drilling around in your data. It might just be something that needs to be a printed version. But, yeah, um, so you're absolutely right. It really depends on the audience as well. I just perhaps to, to add to this, it kind of it's, uh, just made me think like one of the the often thing I do is we find something, we have uh, different uh, uh, methods and reports that do an anomaly detection and we find an anomaly. And it could be something diligent, uh, very, very small thing that we found. And the way I communicated is by writing it out in our Slack channel, but also taking a screenshot of the dashboard. 
because that visualization just tells the story that you see this timeline and then it just something started exploding can we figure out what this is happening so kind of this uh <laughs> i just i do a lot of screenshotting of interactive dashboards just to persist it and tell the, the story uh, with my text so i think that just opens up for a whole other field as well data storytelling right because I think data storytelling has always been important, but when you have interactive dashboards, I do exactly the same. I take so many screenshots because that's a good way to explain to people, well, in this filter context, look at what I found. Now the distribution looks like that, but if I click this municipality instead, I get a completely different story. And that's, I think it inspires people to try to play around with their data, try to click on it, see what happens. Because often I think interactive, like dashboards, they could you can get a thousand different opinions on the data depending on what kind of cross filters people make luckily right because it means that people can find what they're looking for but they need to know what to look for as well so one of the things again screenshots are awesome one of the things that you need to have <laughs> so I, again I, I work a lot with these interactive tools and print is my worst enemy because as soon as it's printed then it becomes inactive or you know it, it, it's at least detached from the uh, live connection of the data and then having something on your reports that say when was this data last updated or when was this filter set or something like that so when people actually do print you can say okay the reason that it looks this way is actually because it was you know last year's data so don't um, so, so that we don't end up with uh, with with something that is just a whole bunch of screenshots but it is one of those wonderful things uh, whenever we teach we, we always try to preach that you know we're never going to teach on on business data we always use demo data because that way you will learn the tool you won't learn the the business because as soon as we use something that is visually interactive everybody gets excited it's the first thing that you do you you present some sort of visual and then they go "Ooh, can we see it compared to this or why does that number look like that that should be you know and having that interactive and that super intuitive easiness uh to to the to the reports is something that is just as great beneficials uh or it's, it's really beneficial to the business i think Okay, great. So we'll move on then, um, finally, to Christopher. Uh, so you want to discuss the lack of trust in data. So can you explain a little bit more for us? Yeah. So one of the one of the obstacles that I have uh, when I work with again the interactive reports that we're we're talking about here is one of the things that I often get is is people come to me with an Excel sheet uh, and says, "Can you build this in an in in your tool?" And again, Power BI is my 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 go to tool. So can you bring this into Power BI? And I'm like, no, because this is a spreadsheet if you want something you know that will need to tell a whole different story so again the, the data storytelling so how do you use it what do you actually see from all of this data and one of the things that i continuously uh, struggle with is the fact that people have these ex uh, these silos in excel where they have their picture of the truth in an excel sheet but it might not be the truth it, it might be their picture of the truth coming back to this whole uh, data quality thing as well and, and and one of the things that I at least struggle with is, um, especially within finance and things like that, they love their, you know, this is my truth. And if you cannot come up with the same number, I'm not going to trust whatever you have, even though that might be more correct. And and I was just, you know, thinking we come from very different. Obviously, I'm a consultant, but we come from very different businesses. So whether or not you guys have that same problem whenever you try to push this interactive reporting. OK, yeah. Torben, do you want to? Give your response. Yeah, well, I, I think there's actually an unfortunate thing happening that once I put I, my weapon of choice is Power BI as well. And once I put it into Power BI and I give it <laughs> the company colors and the logo on it, 
then it just gives this illusion of it being right sometimes, um, which of course is what <laughs> you're looking for to to signal that this is the truth. But it just has that. Uh, it's so colorful with all the logos and stuff. This must be right, and I can present exactly the same data in a spreadsheet that hasn't been formatted, and people don't trust it at all. So I think sometimes actually there's uh, there's a wrongfully put trust in data once you visualize it too well as well. So I think this actually sometimes can go two ways. Interesting. So Ira, what's your response? Um, I don't have experience with uh, silos in Excel, but we do have different business systems. For example, Salesforce and Gainsight, and people are able to build uh, reports there. And we also see this uh, problem where there is a uh, their uh, version of truth in every tool. And even though we have a centralized uh, data team uh, and we try to uh, encourage everyone to use the metrics that we created for them, it doesn't work that well still. Um, but I know I, I work with Looker as a visualization tool, but I mostly work as an analytics engineer. So I really more uh, work with building data models, uh, writing SQL queries and so on. And uh, we use a tool which is called uh, DPT, Data Build Tool. And um, uh, and we have a centralized data warehouse. So we, we can get all of the data from all of these different business systems and just theoretically bring every everything to them. And we will be the ones who controlling the metrics and who are controlling the numbers, and we will not allow them to build reports. Uh, but then uh, it's very hard because you need to have a very, very big data team in order to accommodate every department in the company. And uh, again, there is this problem with self-service BI, where you kind of want to put away uh, some work from you and give uh, other people uh, ability to build something on their own, but then you come up with these problems where they just create some metric uh, in the wrong way and they have a wrong number. Yeah. Yeah, Thomas? Yeah, so kind of, we're we're fairly young company, so we don't have the, I think, uh, the legacy of, of many uh, Excel sheets floating around, but it's kind of like, we still, I still encounter the thing, but usually what we do is, is we have the, uh, we have the um, uh, initial meetings where we kind of draw up or do some preliminary testing. And then we actually go into uh, a visualization and talk about how should this look. And then we start like, it's funny, I wouldn't have, if you talked to me if like five years ago, I wouldn't have thought so, but it's kind of, it's almost philosophical questions where we ask, what is the definition in, in our case? It could be, what is an active vehicle? Okay, what is a vehicle? And, and you, it's it can seem tedious, but like going into actually, what are we talking about? So, uh, makes a is a lot of the effort that goes when when we then publish a dashboard from our, our team is kind of we have complete trust in it. It's also been unit tested and we're kind of gone through it. So, like there's a lot of trust once we uh, get it out, but it's it it it's uh, it takes a long uh, while to to get to that point. Yeah, and, and as you said, you know, defining those KPIs. So, what's an active visual? What's what's an active vehicle? What's what's an active whatever? And, and and we have companies that work across borders. And I work with another company that that looked at subscribers. Uh, and depending on what country you were actually in, 
what is an actual active subscriber actually? So that did, that was different from country to country. So whenever they were sitting at board meetings, they would go. So in Sweden we have this many. Okay, so in Norway that's have this many, and then in Denmark we have this many. And then you would look at it going, okay, so fair enough. So that's the truth. But in fact, when you look at it from a corporate perspective, you needed to unify that data so that from the different companies or from the different countries, whenever you brought it in, they would have the same KPIs. So in an active subscriber would be defined one way from corporate and then in different ways in, in, in the other uh, parts of the business. And the same thing goes with vehicles. When you would look at it from a management perspective, it might be all the active ones are just the ones that are driving. But from a maintenance perspective, you're pretty interested in the ones that are, you know, not driving. So that's going to be not an active, but that's an active one for them. So depending on what 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 part of the business you're in, the KPI might feed into a different corporate KPI. Can I uh, just inject here to so kind of um, it's a I, I completely agree, and that's where we end up. Like, what what are we talking on about that dashboard? So usually when we use, uh, I think. Google Data is a good studio for many other things, and now it's just been today renamed or yesterday as Looker. <laughs> uh, but in that case, we we always have a page on it that is basically assumptions. So what is where we write these definitions, where we say, okay, this is what we mean in this dashboard. This is what done, and when we show the this par parameter, this is the definition. So kind of we can always backtrack and then. And people can yeah read into it and understand what is it in their setting. Yeah, I think it's just the whole topic of definitions. I think that's really what it comes down to. When people don't trust data that we visualize for them, it's probably because they have another definition living in their head. They just never really put it to words. Um, so sometimes what I do to to try to convince them that it's okay that I handle their data because they're they're the domain experts and they definitely know. And if we get on the third decimal something different, especially in finance, as you say, Christopher, then it's just the end of the world for them. But then at least hold their hand, do some simple calculations in a table because finance people love tables. And once I get them convinced that they trust my definition or the def definition we've done together in a table, I can convert it to a bar chart and everyone is happy. But I think it's definitely a journey that you're often on with people because they have that whole, well, it's all well and good, but it's not made by me. So it's not perfect. <laughs> and that's just something that we struggle with. And especially once it has the whole abstraction of data visualization on top of it, it just it's it becomes a bit much for people who really rely on the last decimal numbers. Um, I wanted to add uh, that uh, I do think that having a centralized data warehouse and uh, one uh, data team that owns uh, all of the raw data, owns all of the definitions, owns, owns all of the metrics, and uh, and also ingesting these metrics in all of this business system might be the way to solve this. But uh, yeah, we are nowhere there in our company because of how it historically how historically you. You create a data team. Uh, it's a uh, you. You don't always have it from from the start of the company and only start doing some data and reporting later on, and then you already have all of these silos. You already have all of these departments doing their own thing. Part of what I see, at least, is that you know ninety percent of our business probably is building data warehouses. But one of the things that we we see now is that we we've come up. There's there's a new thing uh, that we're calling a data lake house. Um, that you know. 
part of the having that centralized data in a data warehouse used to be really good because everybody would go in and it would have the same sense of the truth. But one of the things with these newer tools is the fact that you do come up with this self-service BI. A lot of people will then start to connect to their Excel sheets or do their own data dumps or do something else. And we're seeing more and more of all that copying of data takes up a lot of storage, first of all. And and one of the other things is that, is that so if we can if we can give that data to the users in a more structured manner in a data lake or something like that, that we can share more structured data and then that can be used across several different reports. That's, I think that's that's at least one of the solutions for the the whole, you know, yeah, data silos and 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 uh, what what we see has been a problem is that the lakes, the data lakes, might be something that that could potentially solve that, and 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 you know that could build the modern data warehouse. I think. So similar to kind of um, um, uh, so, so what I'm trying to say is kind of I was talking into uh, unit testing. I mentioned it briefly before, but it's kind of also a thing where like that's a normal thing in, in most backend te uh, teams and development teams. And I think um, in our it's something we spend a lot of time in, in our, our data engineers in the team is kind of making validating that the things we're doing like data cleansing and but also having a, a test suite. So when we prepare like the transformation of data into the layer that is presented in the dashboard, like there's a lot of testing and which also gives that confidence is kind of we're not exposing raw data because that will be kind of that's just too uh, dangerous into making uh, error, uh, erroneous c conclusions. So I think like uh, getting that part of uh, unit testing as a data professional is also, I think it's quite important and not something I've seen very much of. We are also doing the same in our team. As I mentioned, we use this uh, DBT tool and it uh, it's allows you to document and test all of your models and transformation, transformations that you did for the data. And we don't expose raw data to users. We only expose uh, the one that we already transformed and applied some business logic. It is working now, but uh, it requires uh, more and more people joining our team to prepare data for different departments. So. Uh, looks like it's scalable, but we'll see. Okay, great. Have we got any final thoughts on today's topic? Yep, perfect. So we'll leave it there for today. I want to take this opportunity to thank you all, Torben, Thomas, Ira, and Christopher, for providing some great insights into today's topic. Hopefully, each of you can take something away from our discussion. To everyone else, thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at shan.vance at evolution-nordics.com. I hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been the Evolution Exchange Podcast.